Luke chapter 17 is our text this morning. We're picking up in verse 20. Um, but but um, the thing that you have to know about the gospel of Luke is it's kind of like um, when you start a movie and they show you a scene and, uh, and, and it's like this really high intense action scene. And you're like, what's going on? What's the context to this? Right. And then all of a sudden it's like that, that scene ends the, the first like three minutes of the movie of that opening scene of the movie ends. And then all of a sudden you get the words on the screen that's like, you know, 475 days earlier and then you're like oh okay like they were showing me what's going to happen but now we're going to get the context and, and that's kind of what happens here in the gospel of Luke because if, if you recall as we begun to uh, we began to study the gospel of Luke the opening lines are very much uh, in this same vein the opening lines are uh, Luke writing this dedication and he's explaining like the whole point of this book uh, is because there's this guy Theophilus and, and he's seems like he's funded this venture for Luke to do this, um, to write this uh, material, to pull this together. And, and Luke says, I've done all the interviews. I've, I've gone out. I've done the, the research. He's, he's, uh, Luke is a, a physician, so he's, he's used to um, having great attention to detail, to taking notes, to um, tracking things well. And Luke goes out and he does these interviews. He talks to all these people. And, and he says there, um, in, in his opening words, uh, that there are people who have delivered to him this information. And, and he says, it seemed good to me, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, right? So that's the guy who's bankrolling this venture. And uh, here he says, the purpose of this is so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, Theophilus has already been taught this and Luke's like, let me just put it together in an orderly account so you can understand the truth of this and so you can have confidence in the things that you're believing. And so as we've begun to study the gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus repeats these themes again and again, over and over. And, and as we come to uh, chapter 17, we're in the situation where, uh, again, he ha is giving a warning. He's re uh, calling those who uh, profess to follow God and profess to uh, want to walk in the ways of God to respond to who he is. And he's been doing this kind of through this pattern throughout the entire book where he's having this kind of standoffs with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes. And he just is kind of uh, uh, consistently demonstrating to them his claims that he is the son of God. He's kind of making this point and then he backs off a little bit and sometimes he asks them a question and sometimes they ask him a question, but again and again, he's revisited this. It seems as though he has endless patience with these people who fail to, to see um, what he's actually trying to say. And so as we come to the text this morning, we find ourselves just exiting a, a situation where he was speaking to uh, religious leaders. He was speaking to um, disciples, and now he's, he's pressing in again to the Pharisees. In verse 20, we get these opening words in chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So he's had this kind of standoff with the Pharisees many times throughout the gospel, and he's been telling them the kingdom of God is at hand. This has been the message that he's proclaimed consistently since he showed up on the scene. A few uh, passages earlier, he talks about how uh, the, the law had this certain um, point of proclamation up until the time of John the Baptist. But since that time, he has begun to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And the Pharisees have been real resistant and tried to catch him in all these traps. But now they come out and they say, okay, Jesus, you want to you wanna talk about the kingdom of God? Let's talk about the kingdom of God. And, and they show up and they say, you know, we want to know about this. We want to see if this is real. And what they're asking for is uh, tangible signs. They're asking for, for um, things that they can see. Now, the passage immediately before this is Jesus cleansing 10 lepers, right? Uh, he, there are 10 lepers who have this insane disease, and uh, it's something that would have been a death sentence. And, and, and so Jesus brings healing to these 10 lepers, and he sends them off to the priest. So obviously word would have gotten around that, like, here's a pretty great sign that um, healing is happening. Not only that, this is something that would have been uh, said to have taken place by this coming Messiah, this Savior that's promised that he would begin to uh, heal the sick, that he, the, the uh, blind would see, the lame would walk. There's all these prophecies throughout the scriptures that, that speak to this. And, and again, here we have a case of these 10 who are healed. Um, and so they fail to see this. The, the Pharisees do. They fail to see this as a sign. And so instead, they ask for another sign. We want something with the kingdom. And the reality is this. They don't like Jesus's humble style of ministry. They want the big show. They want the fireworks. They want uh, the, the announcer to come out and make this big uh, introduction, right? They're hoping for like the, and now the kingdom of God and the people who held it down for the last 300 years are the Pharisees, right? And they all walk out and everyone's like, ah, great job, Pharisees. Like that's what they're looking for. That's what, that's what they want. They want the reaction. They're, they're hoping for this big show, but Jesus isn't about that. He is understated, he is humble, and he has said how the kingdom of God will come. And he's made this point um, th throughout the Gospels uh, and throughout his, his, his mission. And so the Pharisees believe that there's going to be some sort of, you know, uh, big sign in the sky that they're going to, to witness. It's going to be so clear, so powerful, that um, there's going to be this massive announcement. In, in, in reality, if they were... Um, aware, they would have had the awareness to know that, like, that, that happened when Jesus was born, right? Remember the heavenly hosts, and they all show up in the sky, and they're, like, singing, like, you know, glory to God in the highest, peace to men, and, right? Like, that, that happened. Like, it was already something that took place. It, it wasn't for them. It wasn't this big proclamation for them. It was, it was this announcement, this heralding of the arrival of the king. That already took place, and now he's here. And so, uh, they are looking for Jesus's kingdom. And he says, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. He just lets him down straight off the bat. He's like, you guys, you're not going to get what you're looking for. It's not something that you are going to see these big signs and wonders with, that the, the, the heavens are going to open up and there's going to be this, um, this army of heaven that's going to come forth and, and be chanting and, and announcing the kingdom of God. And Jesus's point really is this, that they are ignoring what's happening right before their eyes. It's, it's happening right in front of them. It's been happening for chapter upon chapter upon chapter. This is years before the Pharisees, and they are missing what God has been doing through Jesus. <clears throat> if you look back in chapter 12, remember, he, he chastises the crowds uh, for, for failing to understand what is happening. In chapter 12, he, he speaks to the crowds, which include the disciples and the religious leaders and these people who have been following him. And he tells them in chapter 12, verse 54, he, he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, 
a shower is coming, and it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there's going to be scorching heat, right? So he's like, you guys are like pretty, like pretty good amateur weather peoples. Like you, you understand what's happening here. Uh, you look, you see a cloud like, hey, it's probably going to rain. They understand. They can read this. And then he goes on in verse 56 right after that. And he tells them, you hypocrites. He calls them out. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He's telling them there are plenty of signs but you are failing to see them. You're failing to respond to them. You're failing to react to what is actually happening. And so in looking for these current signs that the Pharisees are asking Jesus for, what are the signs of the kingdom of God? Jesus is essentially telling them, you guys, the the signs of the weather have been out there for a long time and you, you are failing. You're not listening. A A chapter previous to that, Jesus made the point Um, about not asking for signs. If you look back in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, he speaks and he says uh, to these people who are crying out and trying to say, oh, Jesus, you're the best. Like, you know, uh, your mom's blessed, you're blessed. And he says this, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, right? So here's the blessing. If you hear what I'm saying, if you listen to what I'm saying, and then you apply it, you actually do it. Not just hear it and say, that makes sense, right? He's not looking for, this isn't a comprehension test. This is a test of not just comprehension, but you have got to put it into action. I think lots of us read the scripture and we say, see what's happening there. I understand what he's, what he's saying. I understand what he means. And that's about as far as it goes. But he's asking us to, to take steps, to, to walk in the things that he's calling us to. And so he tells them there, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then he goes on, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation, right? And, he's, and he, he goes on to talk about how they ask for a sign. And he's like, there's no sign that's going to be given except the sign of, of Jonah, right? And, and then we're going to break this down because there's a connection here, right? And then he goes in the sign of Jonah. And why is he talking about like the the days of the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Noah, and, 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 and the, the sign of Jonah. What's going on here? Well, if you recall, back in that chapter, Jesus' point there in that chapter is that Jonah got sent with this message to the people of Nineveh. And what did they do when they heard this message? They repented. They actually changed. They, they heard the word, and they responded. They heard the word of God, and then they kept it. That's what happened. Now, This is an important component for us because what did he say just before this, right? He has this this response um, from these lepers who he heals. This is the passage that we looked at last week, these 10 lepers. And these 10 lepers come to him and they're asking for healing. And 10 receive healing. They go away to show themselves to the priest, as Jesus told, but one returns, And the one that returns, he returns praising the Lord. He returns to give thanks to Jesus. He's got this tremendous gratitude. And and you get this whole description of him. And then it finishes in verse 16 and says, and he was a Samaritan. that, That part is buried for us because we want to see this genuine response before we take out our judgmental mindset about like, oh, well, he's a Samaritan. And what's happening there is that it's being said that this guy who is, uh, has the least spiritual qualifications was the one who responded most. He's a foreigner. 
So like the men of Nineveh who responded, this Samaritan responded. Like the men of Nineveh who heard the word of God and did it, this Samaritan, he also responded. And so you find that this attitude of, of hearing what Jesus is saying and responding is paramount to, what, uh, to his mission in the kingdom of God. He doesn't invite people on the basis of class or ethnicity. He, he doesn't invite people on the basis of your culture. He, it's, do you recognize that when he gives the word, he's the king, and you're going to respond to him? You're going to hear his word and do it. That's what he's looking for. And so he, he goes out um, and he says, the kingdom of God is, is, is not coming in ways that can be observed. And, and then he tells them, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus straight up tells them, you don't go search for it. Don't go out searching for the kingdom of God. Don't go out looking for like this, this thing. Why would he say that? Well, because he's making this point that the kingdom of God, he says, it's in the midst of you. What does he mean? He means that it's already present with the person standing directly in front of them. Like, I'm here, it's here, you don't have to go look for it, I'm talking to you, I'm the one who's bringing the kingdom of God. I've said that many times in our conversations, and he's making this point for them. The Pharisees are to see in Jesus the kingdom's arrival. They are to see that he is the fulfillment of that. And so he says, you don't need to go look for a sign because the sign is me. I am the sign. I am the one that you're looking for. There's no hunt. You don't have to go and waste all your time going out and finding these things. It's already here. We're having the conversation. Just now listen to what I'm saying and respond. In order to see this kingdom, they've got to hear Jesus' words, look to Jesus, and respond to what he offers. Isn't that exactly what happened with the leper in this last passage? The Samaritan leper goes away with the rest of them. He receives healing. He recognizes what's happened. And then he goes back and he says, let's praise the Lord. Let's respond and give thanks and gratitude. And he realizes he's got to return to Jesus because that's where this came from. He is now <coughs> owes his allegiance to Christ. And so he goes back and responds. Now, Jesus tells them the kingdom is in the midst of you. So it's with them there. But as you know, we've had a tumultuous last, you know, three years. And clearly we're like, this does not seem like the kingdom is here because like stuff, there's been some like nasty stuff happening, right? And what, what Jesus is getting at here is that there's kind of this already not yet situation that happens in the scriptures where the things that God says are true are true, but the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment, the arrival of that is not yet taken place. So the kingdom is here. It comes in stages, one present and the rest in the time to come. And so the kingdom is in the midst here as they look to Jesus. Um, but its presence doesn't mean that it's not the same as the day of the, the, the son of man and his, his coming has not occurred. So Jesus turns now to this theme, and he, he speaks uh, to the theme of his return. Look at verse 22, and now he kind of presses in and talks to the disciples a little bit more so. He says this in verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, 
and you will not see it. So essentially, Jesus warns the disciples here about uh, what this time will look like. Because if you're a disciple and you're like, look, I, I chose to follow you, so I'm, I'm already somebody who did respond. I'm all in on the kingdom of God thing. Let's go. I'm with you. But our tendency is to be like, okay, like, I, yeah, I did the thing. So like, when do we get the payoff? Right? That's kind of instantly how we work a lot of times. Like, checked all the boxes, fulfilled all the things. Like, what now? Like, can we, can, like, I get the, the, the equation. Can I get what I'm looking for out of this? But what this reminds us of, again, is that oftentimes what happens is that we end up using Jesus as a means to an end. We're like, I'm going to come to get you for this, Jesus, because it's going to, to produce for me the thing that I'm looking for. Lord, I'll give these things up because I know that if I do, uh, you know, then you're going to bless me. Sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate more time. I'm going to be more focused. But Jesus will not allow you to use him as a means to an end. He is the prize. He is the treasure. He is the goal. He is the one that we are delighting in. And so when you get Jesus, you get everything. He's giving us the fullness of himself. And he tells them here, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And really what he's speaking to here is just like kind of like our, our, our um, tendency to kind of get like a little bit antsy, a little bit impatient. Because he tells them like, you're going to have this desire. He doesn't say it's a bad desire. But he says, you're going to be sitting there and you're going to be like, like, what's going on? Like, I'm just really looking forward to this time. Like, I'm looking for the kingdom to come. Like, we, you know, kind of just, we really want to jump the gun here. He says, and you're going to want to see one of these days, but you're not going to see it. You're going to long for the fullness of the kingdom of God. You're going to desire it, um, but it's not going to happen. And what he's, what he's really trying to get at here is just uh, to help us to understand that we work on his timeline and that we need to be patient with what he is doing and what he is accomplishing. He's not working on our timeline. He wants to assure us that it will come. He's just trying to uh, help us to understand that it's not going to come when we want it to come. It's not about us. And, and, and what happens is we tend to get distracted and people will be like, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's this when we start these speculations. And that's why he rolls out this, this kind of like sidebar warning in verse 23. They will say to you, look there or look here. And he just tells them, do not go out or follow them. Don't listen to other people's claims when they're saying, oh, like, well, this is the actual savior because like, look at the action. Some things are happening. Like there's, uh, you know, there, there's some signs that you can see here of this. When you hear claims to, to see the Son of Man, don't go, he tells us. And then he, he, he makes it clear what will actually happen. Verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So, right, you could take this like a lot of ways. But the long and short of it is like, it's, it's, it's way more simple than we realize. What happens when there's, when there's lightning? Right? You see uh, some areas, depending upon the storm, you get the kind of the, the precursor, you hear that sound first, right? or, or, or you, or you uh, get, the, get the lightning and then you get the thunder or whatever. But, but what happens is um, you, can, you can kind of tell from almost any vantage point that something has happened. You can be in a house and it will light up a window, it'll light up a skylight, like just the, it's so bright, it's so vibrant that, the, that just the, the, the spark, the flicker, you could, you could catch the, the tiniest bit of lightning in the sky and, and it, will, it will just illuminate an entire space. 
And so what Jesus is saying here is that when, when I do decide to show up, you don't need to look for signs because it's going to be readily apparent. This isn't about like, um, okay, for, for those of you who are, really want to get nerdy about this, we're not looking for any particular type of lightning. Some of the other passages say, like, the lightning is going to run east to west. And like, like right, so when it's, um, the, the goal for us here is not to be like, oh, there's lightning, like, let me run outside and see if it's going from east to west. And like, is this the day that, like, Jesus is returning? Like, that's not what's happening here, right? This is not your, this is not your task. He's not giving you that goal. The goal here is to help the disciples understand that, like, you're not going to miss it. No one's going to miss it. Just as lightning illuminates the entire sky, just as it shows up and, and is everywhere, no one's going to be like, what happened? It's going to be readily apparent. Nobody's going to miss these signs. But before that happens, he tells us, he must suffer and be rejected by this generation. That's what he explains in verse 25. That cannot happen until his suffering. Uh, you'll find that he's warned of this many, many, many times throughout the gospel thus far, uh, and has made this apparent. Um, as we move on into uh, the, the further chapters, you're going to look into chapter 18, and your subheading is going to tell you, Jesus foretells his death a third time, right? It's like, it feels like maybe in that official way, but in an unofficial way, holy smokes, he's been like just nonstop saying like, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, the Messiah is going to suffer. He just, he's always talking about this. And so he's reminding them, guys, check the progress bar. Like, we haven't gotten to the stage where, like, I've suffered and died. I've, I've been rejected by this generation. So, obviously, the fullness of the kingdom is not here. <coughs> so, he pulls this out to help them understand that, but also to, to tie in a key fact, right? He says, I'm going to suffer, but I will be rejected by this generation. This is the idea is that the people as a whole, a corporate group, are not responding to his message. He's treating them not as individuals, but as a collection. That you are all together. And that this group entirely will not receive me in as the king. They will all be against me. Right? That's not to say, right, because we live in this really individualistic culture, so that's not to say that they're, the disciples are means that they were like, yeah, we are all against Jesus. We reject him as well, right? Obviously, you get that with like Peter. The rest of the guys like scram out of there and they get all scared and stuff. But they're, they're not like firmly against him, but they're lumped in. This is a, a corporate environment that they are um, a part of. They are being called as people who reject him as well because the entirety of the culture does not receive him. And he goes on to explain how important it is to respond to him. And he does it through two examples, through uh, Noah and Lot. These are two Old Testament figures uh, that had prominent stories that they would have been well aware of and had God's blessing upon their lives. And they had God's blessing because they obeyed. But there were, by contrast, a group of people who did not obey, who did not respond to the word of God. He says in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of, son, of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus compares the days of the Son of Man with this cataclysmic flood of Noah. You read about it in Genesis 
um, 6. And he says, like that time, people are going to be conducting um, life with little to no attention to God. And the, the result of that is that there will be a judgment that comes upon them when they fail to heed uh, this uh, word that God has given to them. Now, if, if you think about this, you, you look back in, at, at Noah's story. This is one guy building a boat in the middle of nowhere by himself. So as you look at the timeline, this was like a hundred year project. And Noah was like kind of telling people like, hey, like I'm building this. There's going to be like judgment coming. So you should listen. So it's not like Noah randomly constructed a boat in like 30 days or, you know, a year. And like people were like, man, we're not really sure about this, Noah. Like this is a generation of people who rejected. A generation of people who were like, Nah, we're not on board with you. We've watched you your entire life. We've heard your message. We've seen what you've been doing. You're continuing on this path. We don't think, we don't think you're going the right way. We're not going to listen to you. There's tremendous patience, tremendous graciousness for this message to be carried out and given again and again and again over time and ultimately rejected by this generation and, and at the time that judgment actually comes, he says, it's until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. People were unconcerned with God. They were unprepared for him. And then life ended. And so like the time of Noah when people ignored uh, his warnings, Jesus says that a failure to embrace him leaves people in a place where they are exposed, when they're in danger of judgment. He goes on to give the second uh, example of Lot in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus refers to this other Old Testament figure, Lot. He's got a similar situation uh, to the days of Noah. And uh, the basic idea here is that <coughs> um, Lot is told that there's going to be judgment upon the city and to get out of there um, and to move quickly, to move in a hurry. Um, and at that time, the people also were unwilling to repent and they are going about their business. There's this big list that we get there eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. They are not in preparation mode. There's not a hint that like they were getting their, their bags ready and uh, they were in the process of packing to leave the city. Nothing like that. They're starting new ventures, planting, building. They, they are entirely unconcerned with the things of God. He says, but on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So like the days of Noah, so were the days of Lot. They were days of judgment. When Lot departed Sodom, death resulted, is, the, is what happens here. And he says, so will it be, verse 30, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He goes on now to give us kind of this random example in verse 31. And again, um, this is kind of like... Uh, a, an example of how we should think, a principle of how we should think. This is, this is the same thing as like looking at the lightning, okay? This is, these are not instructions 
for how to pack your doomsday bag. This is not instructions to like, you gotta like go, you know, find some like remote cabin and like make sure you're like all squared away like that. This is not like instructions for that. This is instructions though for preparedness. So there's two differences there. We'll get to it in a second. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, so this is the passage. It sure sounds like he's saying, here's what you need to do, right? It sure sounds like he's giving like specific instructions. But, but what he's getting at is the attitude. He's getting at the attitude. When the Son of Man comes, one will have to escape quickly. Now, is he talking about this literal time that like when Jesus actually shows up and, uh, you know, he's going to return and it's going to be like, okay, all the people who are Christians, we all got to get out of here right now really fast. I don't think that's what's being said. It doesn't make any sense in the passage. You'll see what I mean as we get to the vultures, right? Uh, He says here, though, don't turn back. The goal is be determined with what you're going to do, and don't turn back. Don't second guess. Don't think about it again. Be determined in your mind as to what you're going to do, and don't turn back. So two separate exits are described. We get someone on the house who's told, don't go into the house to gather up your stuff, right? This is kind of the common sense sort of information that you get when you are uh, on a plane, right? And they're doing the little safety thing and they're like, your exits are here and here and here's how a seatbelt works. And they say, in the event of a water landing, like exit this, the, 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 on, on the slide, don't, don't get your stuff, right? Because everyone's like, oh, like we're crashing and the plane's on fire and like, I got to get my bag out of the care. You know, it's just like, come on guys. Like, you know, this is the life or death situation. This is not the time to stop to get your possessions. But we have to be told that because there will be people who are like, I've, I've just got to stop and get this one thing. And everyone will die because of this delay. And so he says here, as this judgment comes and you're on the roof, don't go down into the house and start packing your bag up and being like, okay, I got to get all my stuff ready. What do I think? I'm going to need this for my trip. I got to take this. Oh, I really enjoy this. This isn't the time for souvenirs and mementos. This isn't the time for that. What, what he says here is that imminent danger is happening. You got to get out of there quickly. The second picture is similar. (coughs) Someone in a field that should flee as quickly as possible in order to miss uh, the consequences of that judgment. Now, his point is this. If you're not already prepared for the day, there's not going to be time to prepare on the day. There's not going to be any time to get your stuff together. And again, as I said, this doesn't mean pack your bags now. This isn't about us like pulling together actual physical items for this. The point that he's making here is to be ready before the day, to, be, to make a decision before the day, to not be caught off guard. These are not instructions to avoid real-time danger, but to avoid future danger by being prepared for the day before it happens. How do we be prepared before the day? We Remember Lot's wife. What does that mean? He invokes the memory of Lot's wife, who in uh, the Jewish scriptures is kind of seen as somebody who is an unbeliever. 
She heard the word of the Lord to not turn back, but she did it anyways. The result of people who survived was what? They heard the word of the Lord, leave Sodom and do not turn around. And what did they do? They heard the word of the Lord and they did it. So if you were going to be in danger, it's the equivalent of saying, I heard the word of the Lord and I didn't do it. Those who find life hear the word of the Lord and they do it. That's the difference between Lot and Lot's wife. If you remember Lot's wife, she just didn't listen to the word of the Lord. They got the same instructions. One obeyed, one did not obey. One turned back. This is why Jesus goes on and he says, um, throughout the, throughout the, the um, scriptures, how important it is for us to be determined to follow him, to make a choice to follow him. In chapter 9, he is speaking, he says this explicitly, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You are determined to uh, enter into God's service, you put your hand to the plow, and you move forward with focus and with intention. No one who, who starts that and is like, eh, maybe I'll turn around and go back the other way. That person is not fit for the kingdom of God because they don't value the words of the king. Listen and do. Hear his word and respond. He goes on in verse 33 to summarize what he's already said uh, before that passage in chapter 9. He says this, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, this is in that same passage that we just talked about with plowing the field and not turning back. He's already explained this. In, nine, in chapter 9, verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Right? That's the, don't go back down into the house and start gathering up all your stuff because you're going to die. Don't try to gain the whole world by holding on to these things. He says, give those things up. And in doing that, you will find safety and security in him. He doesn't promise like this immunity from, from hardships and suffering and, and death. But he does promise abundant life with him. He does ask us to give our lives for his sake. And when we do, we save it. But if you're so determined to protect your life, if you're so determined to guard yourself that you want to hold on to it, it's going to slip through your fingers. You don't have that type of control. It's important to be determined, and it's, it, doesn't matter, um, it doesn't matter who you know or how you're connected. You've got to be determined to follow him personally. You've got to be determined uh, personally that you are going to make this choice to be with him. Who you're with, who you're adjacent to, uh, your, your classifications, your religious knowledge, doesn't matter. He doesn't care about it at all. He doesn't care if it appears that you've been putting in the same amount of work, if you've been putting in that. It's, do you hear his words and obey? He gives us two examples in verse 35. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. 
There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So now we've got these two examples. They're doing the same thing in the same space at the same level. And one of them is taken and the other is left. What he's indicating here is that just because you're together, uh, just because you're in the same space, doesn't mean uh, that, that he's going to take both. It's who has responded, who has heard the word of the Lord and followed through. Two people, opposite faiths, but absolute separation between them. One is taken and uh, one is left. There's a permanence to this. Now, he gets to the end of this whole statement, and the disciples have like a great question, right? Because this is what I, I would be asking too. Verse 37, they said to him, where, Lord? Because <laughs> it gets to like all this whole thing, and he tells this whole thing about the sky and lighting up the sky, and, and, and they're like, okay. And their only question is like, where is this going to happen? Like, we, we want to put, our, put ourselves... Um, in the position, we know you're going to return somewhere. We know that the judgment um, is going to be visible to all, but it's going to be helpful to know, like, where is this going to be? It just, it's like the only question left that they could ask, right? They can't ask, like, when is this going to happen? You know, they already got, the Pharisees already got, got uh, that one knocked out. He just explained, like, how some of these things are going to happen and why they're going to, like, so this is the only one that they got left. And so, the, so uh, he, he entertains their question with this response. <coughs> he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Like that is a, that is a, 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 a word pic- picture right there, right? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And what, what he's explaining here is this. Just as the lightning went across the sky, just as the lightning went across the sky, and it will be apparent to all, he responds by bringing up this image of these vultures circling over dead bodies. It's a gruesome image, uh, one that reminds us of the judgment that is coming. But vultures gather in this way when something has already been accomplished, it's already finished. And so, in effect, what Jesus is saying here is this. Don't worry about where the judgment's going to occur, because once it happens, once it does occur, it's too late, and everyone's going to see it. Everybody who was keeping his word will be aware of what's happened. This is why it doesn't make any sense about going in to pack a bag for believers and, like, actually leaving and being ready, because he says when he does return, it's already done. There's no... We're not waiting for anything else. There's no time period here. He says, when it does happen, it will be apparent. The judgment will have taken place. It's too late, and everybody will know where it's happened because you'll see the vultures in the sky just like you would have seen the lightning. It will be apparent what has happened and when it has happened. And so this return of the Son of Man will bring salvation but bring judgment to others. It's the return of God that... The disciples long for, right? That's why he tells them, you will desire this. You will desire me to return. And, and, and it's a good desire, a right desire. But when he does return, it does mean uh, 
an ultimate judgment for those who are not prepared. So, although at times we might be a people who are incredibly impatient, and we're like, look, like, I'm just done here. Like, can we just, like, I'm, uh, you know, there's all sorts of craziness happening in the world, and like, Lord, come and make things right. And, and, and yes, we do want him to return, but every day uh, that he lets it go on a little bit longer, he's trying to keep that window open for more people to meet him, more people to, to know him and to enjoy him and to come into his family. And so we have to uh, hold that with, uh, with that tension of longing for him to return, um, but knowing that his return being delayed, or I guess it's not delayed because he knows when he's going to return. We think it's delayed. Him not returning when we want him to return, let's just say. He's going to return exactly on time. Um, by him returning in his timeline, it allows the opportunity for more people to come to faith and to know him and to enjoy him. It's a gracious thing that's happening there as well. And it helps us to develop his heart for the lost. That's what we need to, to have. Not a frustration at um, you know, some of the things that we see in the world that are, that are wicked and evil, that make us upset. The injustices that we see. Yes, we want to see those rightly um, and understand those in context of God's righteousness and how things ought to be in true justice, but, but we want to see that God is trying to make a way for more people to know him, and he does that through us. He does that through sending his people out into the world to proclaim the good news, that he's the king. And so we want to have that desire for his return. We want to long for his return. But we've also got to be prepared for his return. How prepared are we for the return of the king? How prepared are we? The kingdom is coming in fullness. But it's made up of those who have responded to Jesus, who've heard his word and have put it into action. It's not about comprehension. It's not about understanding how it works. It's not good enough to know about God, right? I've been a Christian for, I don't know, decades. And I will tell you that there are like some, some people who are like coming in, who are just like pouring themselves into the into the books, into the scriptures, and like they're going like these crazy seminaries, and they've they have been studying. They can like speak, you know, all the all the uh, dialects of like uh, of Greek and Hebrew from the ancient languages, and and it's it's like one of those things where it's like the, the, they can do it for less time and be more talented. But if you if you don't know God, you can know about Him. But if you don't know Him, it doesn't really matter. The goal is for us to, to know him, to have a relationship with him, not to know about him. We're not trying to outsmart each other with the scriptures. We're not trying to outsmart one another with our biblical knowledge. We're not trying to get to a place where we are um, able to operate more independently because we, don't, we know more, so we don't need God as much. Those are not the goals. The goal is for all of us to, to know God, to understand who he is. So that way we can turn to one another and not say, I, I actually know more than you. 
but rather so we can turn to one another and say, can you believe how generous God is? Can you believe how much he loves us? It's for us to hype each other up about like how good he is. Not for us to, not, not for us to be all trying to uh, you know, uh, supersede one another in our knowledge. We're here to, to, to point each other to Jesus. To excite one another about his kindness and his love and his grace. And to uh, walk the road together. To go together in a community of people who are following Jesus in Berkeley. That's what we've always said. We are just a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus in Berkeley. Wherever he goes, we go. We don't care where he's going, but if he says we're going here, well, that's where we're going. We're not trying to drive. We're not trying to redirect him. We're just going where he's going. That's our goal, 100% of the time. This is the call that he has made to us, to be a people who hear his words and do it. And so it's my prayer that we would all be kingdom citizens who understand that, who hear his word, who respond rightly, and turn to him in faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word, for the scriptures, and we ask that you would be glorified as we step forward in faith. It's hard to hear your words sometimes and uh, to respond and to listen to what you're telling us to do. It goes against many of our things that, that we want to do. <coughs> and our goals often clash with what you were wanting to do, but this morning we come again and we recognize that you are our God and Savior, our King, and that apart from you, we have nothing. And that we need to depend on you for every moment. And so, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word and to do it. Call us to, um, to that life of walking with you and taking your word seriously. And we know we're going to fall short. We know we're not going to do it right. We know we're going to um, sin against you when we don't keep your word. And, but we want to repent quickly. We want to recognize that we've not listened well. We've not obeyed well. We want to find that grace that you've shown us at the cross. We want to begin again. So be glorified in, in our efforts. Be glorified in our repentance as we recognize the sufficiency of your blood that cleanses us from all sin. And send us out to live as a community for your glory. We love you. Amen.